You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Libertarian Country is one of the fastest growing and most popular liberty-themed apparel companies in the world. This American-based company was founded by two brothers out of Baltimore who had a vision to create an online store that offers fun, unique, and controversial political clothing and accessories. This five-star company offers the hottest shirts, hoodies, hats, and so much more. So check them out today. This is an independently-owned, liberty-loving business that basically gives you the exact type of apparel and paraphernalia that you've wanted anyway. You just didn't know you wanted it now. Every purchase you make using the link in the show notes allows a small part of your purchase to come back and support the show. So go on, go grab some awesome libertarian country swag using that link in the show notes. You'll thank me later. Hey, everybody, check out the Break the Bell podcast, where we believe your voice is your most powerful weapon. For a weekly dose of our take on what's going on in the world mixed with a side of history. Find us wherever podcasts are found or on social media handle at Break the Bell Pod. And most importantly, never stop talking. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, folks, welcome back. I promised you one because, I mean, we we can't possibly not talk about everything that's going on in some degree. I, uh, I said very early on back in May that we would have very little political content because why hear more of what is very not original. I mean, really, I, I can't I can't add anything special to what's going on. Um, you know, there was never a time in my life where I felt more disassociated with what was going on politically than when I was in media. And now with the new job, it's very, it's, you know, you you might think it would be more connected, but it's not. And and for the most part, during this whole pandemic, I haven't necessarily been as interested in terms of what's going on, but I know a lot of you are. It's really hard not to get into Facebook arguments with your aunt online and random group chats fighting about Joe Biden. I mean, for me, it's always been really weird. We're fighting on behalf of people on TV on the internet we'll never meet them they don't know us and if they did know us they probably wouldn't like us and if we knew them we probably wouldn't like them either but that's that's how elections work and uh, if i had a dollar for every time i heard somebody say this was the election to end all elections that the basis of basic american liberty is on the line if we don't show up on november 3rd um i i'm sorry I, i wouldn't have to work because it's it's what they've been saying this entire year. It's what they say every year, every midterm, every off election cycle, every presidential year. It's it's all the same. And, uh, you know, I, I'd like to think that you're cut above the rest. You're a little bit more aware of what's going on. And that's why we went ahead and brought on our guest today to teach us things about ourselves that we might not know. Lindsay Marie, Young Voices contributor. Thank you for coming on tonight. Thanks for having me. 
Okay, so quick question. Is this the election to end all elections, or is that going to be like the next election, or did that election already come because I, I stopped counting? I'm pretty sure it already happened, but apparently it's happening now, and it will happen again next time. <laughs> this is like the Fast and Furious movies. They tell you that they're going to get more fast and more furious, and then they say they're going to stop. And then they just give you six degrees more Vin Diesel and The Rock. And then they just stop being as fun. We're being gaslighted. Basically. And I mean, I, this, this is me sounding energetic about it all. Because for, for the most part, um, you know, when, when it comes to the political conversations we're having right now, I mean, they're not, they're not conversations. I don't think I'm saying anything that is surprising to anybody. We can't talk about anything without having to go ahead and, you know, read some pre-approved orthodoxy scripts. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been funny. I had, a, I had a friend who's very apolitical messaged me on Facebook the other day. He was like, hey, and I haven't talked to this dude since college. I don't even think we ever talked politics in college, but he messaged me. He's like, hey, man, you, you, you watch any of, the, any of the conventions? I said, no. And he's like, really, you? used to watch all this shit for fun. used to watch C-SPAN on Friday nights. And I'm like, yeah, I did. And then, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up. But now C-SPAN <laughs> is not as fun as I thought it used to be. I don't think it was ever fun to begin with. But uh, this, is, th- th- this is a weird moment for a lot of people. I feel like a lot of people are either hyper, you know, focused on what's going on, really, for maybe the first election in their lives, in, in their lifetime, or they've just completely tuned out of it. W- what have you seen? I mean, I definitely agree. Like, I think a couple, you know, elections ago, I probably was way more excited. And now it's just, there's just too much going on. I mean, even from the pandemic, um, from, you know, if you look back, we had an impeachment process happen earlier this year, which sounds like it was 10 years ago, but it was like a million years ago. Yeah, it was little, a little over half a year ago. And um, I'm just exhausted from all of it. I think it's really hard because there's so much noise right now that's going on. It's really hard to sort of tame the chaos and really dive into things that are important. Um, Everything is sort of hyperbole and it's always a false dichotomy. You know, it's either you wear a mask and you're a good person or you don't, you're an idiot or you're a sheep if you do. And I mean, there's no room for any kind of nuance or actual creative debate um, in pretty much everything in society right now. So it's not the easiest time to form a lot of hardcore opinions, but um, it's definitely a challenging time. Well, it's just so strange because now every little act of your life is now a political statement. And it used to be there was your life and then there was politics and you could separate them. And now you can't go to the grocery store and buy certain shit without, you know, making a making a declaration of your core, you know, like internal values. And the weird thing is, I mean, it was before people were boycotting Goya and crap like that. <laughs> I remember in 2018, uh, when I was doing a campaign of Young Americans for Liberty in New Hampshire, I, it was it was raining outside. Like, I, you know, how, how you how you got to do things on election day, you got to stand out in the rain because that's what you do. And I had a I had a Nike jacket on and I didn't think that that would be a controversial statement. I'm out there campaigning on behalf of a Republican for crying out loud. And I've got this guy that came over and said that he he wanted to know what candidate I was with. And honestly, I don't even remember the dude's name. Uh that's how, that's how much I cared in that moment. Uh, yeah, I, I probably I probably remembered it then because I remember I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm with this guy. And the, the old man was like, oh, well, I'm not going to vote for him because I see you're wearing Nike and Nike hates America. And I'm just so dumbfounded. I just kind of give this guy like this like random stare of just pure confusion because I'm like, when did when did this happen? I remembered 
he probably watched O'Reilly or one of the many Fox shows, and he's probably hearing all day boycott Nike because Nike signed Kaepernick and Kaepernick hates America. Therefore, Nike hates America. Therefore, if you wear Nike, you hate America. So he went in, and for all I knew, he wrote his own name in. But I certainly know he wasn't going to vote for my guy because of what I was wearing. And that was the first moment where I was like, damn, people actually care about this. I mean, that's a lot of mental gymnastics, though, to connect all that stuff together. I mean, God, that's crazy. I think that people nowadays are so hyper-politicized. And I think for a while, for me, Twitter was, you know, like sort of my bubble of political stuff. But when I wanted a break, I would go to Facebook because it was more people that I know in real life or in people from like, you know, my past or something. But now Facebook is actually 10 times worse than Twitter because it's like mask gate every day. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm seeing both sides and it's like, Jesus Christ, this was supposed to be my little reprieve. And so now I just go to Instagram and look at pretty pictures um, because it's like, you can't really escape it. And no matter where you go, like I'll be at the grocery store or at the fabric store and someone's always commenting about Trump and this and that or the riots. And it's like, I just want a little break every once in a while. And I think eventually people will come to that same conclusion and hopefully start to back away a little bit from this. Yeah. And I mean, I, I want to, I want to tell myself that this is just regular behavior because I certainly remember there were plenty of people that just, uh, there, there were plenty of people on the right who obsessed about Obama from the day that he, he went on TV to the day that he finally left and they still scream about him. I want to say it's almost the same way when it comes to the left and Trump, but I feel like I was never, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm pretty right of center in my politics. While I might be biased and say I was never worried about Trump supporters going around and burning down cities, I can't say that I haven't had some leftist friends who look at Minneapolis and a lot of the stuff that's going on, and they're, they're making excuses for mostly peaceful protests that turn into, you know, massive fires and property damage and death. And I, I'm, I mean, I don't want to talk necessarily about the riots going on. But uh, the, the one interesting trend I'm seeing is that a lot of people I know, and these are folks who I would consider politically apathetic. What's funny is that people that I would have never considered having a remotely political conversation with, we were friends through other things, and I just don't like talking politics with them. Uh, they're, they're sharing you know, libertarian memes. I mean, just outright like Joe Jorgensen meme stash and all this other stuff. And, and it's really funny, especially because when I was younger, I used to be the guy that was pushing it on my friends. Now it's like these people are discovering <laughs> it themselves. And, and I almost feel, you know, somewhat proud, but it's never for the same reasons. It's, ri- it's very rarely that they ever had like this existential crisis moment where they began to really view themselves in the world and how they wanted to apply certain things to their lives. And it's more about being the anti something else. I know a lot of people who are voting third party this year because they don't like Trump and they don't like Biden. And, you know, maybe they'll vote this way, depending on whether their state is a swing state or not, because they dislike this person more than they dislike somebody else. It's this really strange mindset where it's like, I just have to find the anti something. (laughs) So that way I don't have to accidentally condone the other thing. Well, I think it's also interesting because some people are actually realizing that what they've believed in and what they believe to be true is nothing but hypocrisy. And so I've gotten a lot of messages from people that I've known from like decades ago and people that had no political beliefs that I knew of um, randomly message me with things like, I think I'm a libertarian. And I'm like, what? Why do you think that? Because I'm always curious, like, what, you know, why would would you think that? And they're like, well, I'm not a Republican, I don't think, because... I believe in these things, but the Republican Party is not doing it. 
or vice versa with the Democrat Party. And um, I think with so much going on in the world and you're having, you know, Trump, who was one of the most polarizing candidates and Clinton was as well. Um, and you have Joe Biden now, people are starting to see through some of the smoke and mirrors of, oh, we say we're the party of this, but yet we're racking up the debt. We don't seem to care anymore. Or on the left, we're the party of reform, yet we're putting Biden and Kamala Harris on the tickets. Um, I think it's a good time for people to start paying attention because they're going to start to see that maybe these institutions that they believed in aren't exactly what they thought they were. Yeah, and I mean, you bring up a good point that when they begin to see options, they begin to really question why they go for one thing or another. And it's it's really odd in a way because how do I put it? Okay, you've got like five libertarians in the room and you ask them to define it and they're going to give you like five different answers. Yeah. I, I, re- I really wonder if it's like that because I feel like for a lot of people, things are surface level issues. And I use 2012 as a, as a big example, not that there was a, a giant wide gap between the two candidates in 2012, but for a lot of people, the issue in 2012 was the deficit and taxes and Obamacare. And thanks to political geniuses like David Axelrod, and I say that Honestly, I think David Axelrod, we might be, you know, totally different ends of, ends of the pe- of the spectrum, but I respect a man that knows how to get the job done. Uh, David Axelrod made the entire thing about Romney driving with his dog strapped to the top of their car during, you know, their famous American yeah. you know, cross-country vacation and abortion, which, I mean, those issues might matter to some people, but that became like the entire thing. Exactly. Well, if I remember correctly, there's also binders full of women. And it's weird that I remember those like weird anecdotes because they really don't add as much to the discourse as whatever his policy position is. Mitt Romney was the most, he was the most white bread candidate and they're (laughs) getting him for that. And I look back at now and I'm just like, the dude was old Mormon Obama. (laughs) Yeah. Like there are plenty of things to criticize him about trying to make him sound more scandalous than he was. Like when they tried saying that he killed that woman uh, when Bain Capital took over like some some factory and they're like, because of six degrees of separation that Romney's personally responsible for murdering this woman because he took away her healthcare because he shut down her company. It's like, no, the, the company was being outsourced to China, yeah. which is another problem. But like, you know, you're, you're trying to accuse Mitt Romney of murder when you've got people right now who hate, who like would have said that he would cause World War Three and like a Godzilla attack in the middle of Washington, D.C. or something through like deregulating environmental regulations. They're now foaming at the mouth asking him to to run in 2024. And it's just, you know, it's it's this weird sliding scale. Um, it's like when John McCain died, not to say anything about John McCain. People will do that in the comments after this. But like the people that were saying that John McCain hated women, he was racist, he was senile, he was going to cause World War Three, he was going to bomb Canada, he was going to annex Mexico to somewhere. Like they're 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 watching his funeral on like day three thousand of that thing, and they're like, well, you know, John McCain was the only person standing against Trump, therefore he's second to the hand of God. And it's like, what? <laughs> they create the narrative. Yeah, they create the narrative that benefits them the most when it would benefit them the most, right? So they like to pick and choose um, what parts of someone's life they want to talk about in terms of, so if it's McCain, whenever they want to pit him against Trump or something or the GOP, they will use it then. But then when it's advantageous for them to do the opposite, they're going to do it then. It's all a game. It's no different than playing you know, chess. They know when to put the right moves on the board and um, they're pretty good at it most of the time. This might be a loaded question. Oh, I love them. 
Well, I'll, I'll go ahead and shoot away. Do you genuinely think that people going to vote on election day, unless we do the whole mail in ballot thing, um, which if you can go get groceries in person, I don't know why you can't go vote. But do, do you think that people genuinely think that every election is like the difference between life and death? I would guess about 65 to 70%. Yes. Oh God, that's horrifying. Um, Because the people that go and actually vote are the people that are very motivated to do so. And if you're motivated to act, that means that there's a lot of high arousal emotions going on in your brain, which means you're probably pretty angry about something, right? Um, And so psychology would tell you that, yeah, those voters would be the ones that would really believe this is life and death. We're going to, you know, um, if we don't elect this certain person, the world's going to blow up tomorrow and we have no chance of survival. And that's not the case at all. I mean, we've seen both sides do this over and over again, and we're still here. I wouldn't say that we're in the best state overall right now for a lot of reasons, but it's not the same apocalypse that everyone keeps predicting. No, we still have toilet paper. (laughs) For now, right? For now. (laughs) But um, I think the biggest thing people need to realize is that, yes, the presidential um, office has a lot of power right now more than it should. But there are other people that their elections probably matter a lot more in terms of how it's going to affect your day to day life. And that's a local election. That's a state election. That's a prosecutorial election. And those ones which don't get as much attention really are the ones that could really mess up your life if the wrong person gets in power. Do you think that libertarians spend too much time focusing on general elections? Yes. I mean, <laughs> you didn't even have to finish it. There's a reason, there's, that was there's, like a gut reaction. It was like a second voice. Yes. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. There's a reason to do it. Um, and we can get into that. That's a whole thing. But I personally think that libertarians should be focused on prosecutorial races. I think those are races that a lot of people do not pay attention to, and they're extremely important because those are the people who are deciding what crimes they're going to charge people with and which ones they're not going to. So a lot of times libertarians, there are certain laws that they think are unconstitutional, they want to change, and they want to take off the books. That's really freaking hard to accomplish that. That means you have to get so many people elected or convince so many people to do it. Now, the flip side of this is if you can get one prosecutor and convince him to not prosecute, say, possession of marijuana under a certain amount, he can make that decision immediately. And you basically nullify the law on your own without having to go through Congress. Um, This is something that it sounds kind of sinister, but prosecutorial discretion is happening on a day to day basis already anyways. It's a matter of convincing them to make the right choices in terms of public safety and where we're going to spend these tax dollars. And so those races, since they are smaller, libertarians, since they have issues with money, could get in on those races and probably make some things happen pretty fast. Yeah, you, you bring up two important things. And I mean, when you look at those, uh, th- those races specifically, I mean, I think there's a, there's a number out there. It's, it's probably like two, three years old. So I might be incorrect about this, but it's like one in three of those races go uncontested every year. Yep. And I think it's 97% of prosecutors are reelected. Um, a lot of the times the ones that are unchallenged are in rural areas because there's not as many attorneys. And so those are other opportunities where um, sometimes no one actually runs at all. And it's interesting to see sort of how different localities um, fill those positions. But this is a place where they could get in and start to, you know, really make an impact at the local level um, and then take that and replicate it in other cities and states. Yeah. And I mean, I love what, uh, Cliff Maloney and the team at Young Americans for Liberty are doing with their um, 
with their efforts to try and get people elected to state level seats because you got you gotta focus on like where where are your resources best directed am i am i gonna go ahead and write a check for somebody to run like a suicide campaign for president or can we go ahead and make sure enough people are knocking doors you know to try and get somebody who realistically maybe only needs like 10 grand to run for house of representatives within within their state or house delegates state senate that type of deal and they've already seen success with that i i think you, you know you, you brought up something else though it's that you know when it comes to third parties and with with what i meant earlier i mean young americans for liberty a lot of their people are typically republicans they've endorsed some independents they've endorsed some libertarians but typically it's republicans and, and when you look at these third parties yeah i mean a lot of them are broke but i think it says something wider about it though um, I spent many years in the political arena, specifically not making a lot of money, working way too many hours for people who I felt were sometimes pretty ungrateful for Same. the amount of effort Same. that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's a systematic issue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just remember it's like, yeah, some campaigns I actually thought I could win some campaigns. I knew that wasn't going to happen. So it was like move the Overton window, but I think, you know, and I, I made, I made this comment in the worst place. Uh, Facebook the other night. And I basically said, I think a lot of people ignore libertarians because a lot of libertarians are broke. It's a pretty vague, broad statement, uh, but I'm not, I'm not going to take it back because what you have is you have a bunch of people, especially online. I feel like super far left socialists and libertarians own a lot of like the internet talking space, but that doesn't translate into like the real world that we have to go live and work in and deal with people every day. And it, it really comes down to, you've got people who are talking about like broad economic theories and this utopian vision and whether or not we agree with it or not, these are people who really have no no independence in their own life. I mean, it's so funny. We talk about, you know, the United States being indebted to China and dealing with like central banks, but how many people have like consumer debt? How many people have like no savings? How many people like, you know, they're, they're screaming, oh, taxation is theft and everything else. But like when it was time for Sugar Daddy Trump to go ahead and write uh, everyone a check a few months ago, like they were like, oh, this is the difference between life and death. And it's like something's, something's not connecting here. Yeah, and I think you were onto something about how they talk about these broad economic theories, too, because a lot of times libertarians have a tendency to talk at a high level that's very highbrow, very philosophical, and the majority of people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Um, they've not read the economic theory that a libertarian has. They don't really care. It doesn't actually, to them, impact their day-to-day -day life. You need to talk at a level that somebody else can actually understand um, it's sort of like when you work at a think tank, you're so in the world of policy that you come off like completely removed from normal society because you're always talking in terms no one can understand and in numbers that people can't grasp. And so I think that's one of the biggest hurdles. And then also, to be honest, the libertarian sort of world a lot of times is very um, inclusive. And it's sort of like um, this club atmosphere where some people, when they're newcomers, are treated probably not as, you know, with the biggest welcome as another party might welcome them. And it's almost like a hierarchy of who thinks they're the most intelligent sometimes. And this is not always the case, but this does. Oh, it's like, it's like, you know, what was it? Lord of the Flies? <laughs> as long as they, as, as soon as they start to like collect or find each other, it immediately turns into, you know, tribalism and six degrees of your Adolf Hitler. It, yeah. it, it gets crazy. And I mean, those, those are the people it's like, they, they think that they're making a difference online and nothing. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit it. I got triggered online like a couple weeks ago. I saw somebody that said that they were a, a online activist. 
<laughs> and I, I wanted to throw my laptop against the wall. And I was like, what the hell do they do? And I'm like, this person just literally goes around everywhere trolling people. And it's like, yes, because that actually does change the world, Bart from Oklahoma. Please spam <laughs> more people. Tell them why they're sheeple. And then we'll get the legislation passed and everything will be great. The whole world will be better. He just needs to spam more. And it's like, oh my God, this is, this is so much time and effort being put into something that, yeah, I, everyone wants to say that one person can make a difference. But, you know, if, you're, if your actions are nothing, it's, it's ridiculous. And I, I, had a, I had a friend call me the other day. He, he was very apolitical until recently. And uh, he called me, he lives in North Carolina. And he said, Hey, I want to go ahead. I'm thinking about running for office. And I don't know whether or not I want to run as a libertarian or as a Republican. And I, I gave him the, the old, you know, consultant, you know, my two cents type of answer. I said, well, if you want to win, run as a Republican. If you just want to be blatantly yourself, run as a libertarian. Then he was like, well, what do you really think? I'm like, don't run at all. And, and, and it's not because I don't think he would he wouldn't do well or because he would he would lose. I was like, if you want to actually have influence in your community, you know, but become but become independent, maybe start a business, get involved with local organizations, having influence amongst your peers in a way that they respect you and admire your actions because they they somewhat envy your lifestyle. I think that's going to be way more influential long term than, you know, go, going on a campaign trail because regardless as to whether you're likable or not, you've got a large degree of people that just don't like politicians, especially people that want to be politicians. And what do you get at the end of it? If you're running, you know, first time as a Republican, you're going to have to spend probably all your own money and you're going to have only a handful of volunteers. And, you know, if you win, the local GOP will take credit for everything. And if you lose, they'll say it was all your fault. And if you do it as a libertarian, well, it's basically all of that, except there's nobody there to take credit for it. So, you know, it, it, it's one of those strange situations where I think when people look about bringing change within their their own lives and their own community, they always look for the political answer. But, you know, the older I'm getting, the more I'm beginning to understand. It's like, if your life isn't better, if your life isn't something that people want to look at and think, huh, how can I possibly mirror that? I don't think anything else we do is ever going to make an impact. I definitely maybe that's agree. just pessimism. Maybe no, that. I, the longer that I was sort of involved in politics and the true traditional form of the word, sense of the word, um, the more I realized that I could change so much more outside the system and that trying to get people elected was an uphill battle in terms of libertarians. And I mean, big L libertarians. And that I could, you know, throw everything I had into it, but it wasn't going to ever pay off in the way that I wanted it to and that I thought originally that it would. Oh, God, how many angry emails are you going to get after this? <laughs> I, I, it's, I don't even care. They can add to the other list that I haven't even read yet. Wake up, um, sheeple. <laughs> but I sort of realized that there's more things that I could do in my community and at a local level completely outside of the system. And so one of the biggest things that I think libertarians struggle with is whenever people will throw in your face, okay, so what? We're just going to end the welfare state. What happens the next day? And a lot of libertarians will say, oh, well, they'll just find jobs. And that's, you know, that's the idea. But, in <laughs> you know, but in the practical sense, like, you know, you say you cut it off at midnight, you know, 1201, not everyone's gonna have a job. So like, you kind of have to also offer something that's pragmatic that people can see in, in practice and be like, actually, this does make sense. 
So I think, you know, libertarians that are starting food banks or um, trying to help on their communities with different things as far as like, um, I'm trying to give a couple organizations I've seen recently what they're doing, but um, they're doing like food banks and they're doing um, like community bookshelves and things like that. Or like, for instance, for me, whenever the pandemic started hitting and there was this crisis about, you know, uh, masks and gowns for health workers and people like dentists and like literally everybody, I sat there and I was so mad about what was happening and I could sit there and become more mad or I could do something about it. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I can't go help save lives, but I can learn how to sew. So I literally started sewing face masks and you can argue both ways if they're effective or not. I don't care. All I knew is that I had friends at hospitals and um, in different centers across the country that do different psychiatric stuff, even in jails and prisons and people needed masks and they couldn't get a hold of them and they were begging for cloth ones. So I got on YouTube, I watched a video, I bought a sewing machine, fabric and needles and thread, and I've made almost a thousand that I've donated now. Um, And so I think that's the libertarian solution. So I could have written op-eds about how, oh my God, regulation has caused this and blah, 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 blah. That wouldn't have really changed anything. But by me acting on my own and doing that, that's more of a libertarian solution, I think at that point to actually make an impact small but that's something I can actually do in my own life and do it right now and, you know, actually accomplish something. That, that That's remarkable. And I mean, even in just your local community, that's a giant impact, which is literally touching hundreds of people. I mean, that's for every mask itself that you sewed has a story. Yeah. And it's something where like, I would have never imagined myself doing this and um, I didn't know how to sew before, but it was something where, I felt like I needed to do something. And that was the only thing I could really think to do, not, you know, having a PhD. I couldn't go volunteer to hospital, couldn't go save lives, couldn't do testing. Um, and so it's that. I think the more that we think about how, what's the best way we can help out our communities when we see things are wrong, I think the more you create sort of a libertarian society to an extent. So um, you can, when someone does throw up, you know, what everyone just gets jobs at midnight when you take away welfare, you can say, hey, look, we have these programs that are already existing of helping people with, you know, a food bank, getting jobs. We're helping them um, with second chances for people with records. This is how we've done this already. We just need to scale it a little bit more. And then people can actually see it, see it's working, understand it, and actually grasp them the bigger concept. Yeah, there was a, there was a time after college. It was brief because I realized it was a giant mistake. I tried getting involved with the Fairfax uh, Republican Committee here in Virginia. And uh, I, I don't go back anymore because I voted in the Democratic primary for Tulsi Gabbard. So I'm, I'm pretty Reason. persona. I, I'm, yeah, I mean, Kidding. it's hilarious because I'm persona non grata at the meetings, but I still get the fundraising emails. Of course. So it's like, I don't want to be seen together, but your money's good enough. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I always just send it to my spam. And if it's somebody I really don't like, I'll go ahead and say it's a phishing scam. <laughs> but, um, you know, there, there was this one gentleman, and this is several years prior, you know, it seems like a million years ago, BC, before COVID, before the plague. And, uh, you know, it's just this, this, this elderly white guy, Trump hat, hates illegals, wants to build the wall. That was his whole thing. I feel like that was his sole focus in life. It was finding GoFundMe campaigns so people could steal his money because he actually thought that that would build the wall. And uh, I just remember we were talking one time and we, we saw each other throughout 
that cycle in 2018. And, you know, he, he, I, I make fun of him, but he was, he was a nice gentleman, but I just remember, you know, it's, it's always funny because for me, whenever I got involved in anything remotely GOP, I always encountered otherism where it's like, you know, you should tell your people. And it's like, I'm sorry, not all Puerto Ricans go on like a weekly Skype call. And it's not like, you know, the Mexicans join and the Colombians are always late. And, you know, the Central Americans, they, they don't even know what Skype is. So it causes a problem. I don't know how to get in contact with them. And, uh, you know, it, it always it, it's always interesting because I realized that I was probably the only non-straight native Virginian he had spoken to in a while. And I'm probably the first millennial he's seen and not tried to spit at. And, um you know, he, he's talking about problems in the inner city. And I mean, when you really listen to him, it's like his, his heart's in the right place. He's like, well, why, why is there so much crime in Chicago? Why don't these people have dads? Why don't these people know how to go get a job? Why don't these people know how to show up to an interview? And I'm like, have you ever thought about joining the NAACP? And, and you would have probably like the, the way he looked at me, I, it's like I kicked his mother in the face or something. And he was like, why would I do that? You know, they, 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 they hate me. And I'm like, how do you know that? He's like, because Al Sharpton, I'm like, Al Sharpton really rarely does anything with the NAACP anymore. He's got his own organization to funnel money to from now on. So I didn't see him for probably seven months. And I shit you not, that man joined the local NAACP. And then he got involved with the uh, older, like older brother, younger brother program, where you can go ahead and basically be like the positive role model for an at-risk teen. And now this guy's Facebook feed is of him going to parks with children of color who are from at-risk homes. And Crazy, incredible story. It's just, it's just insane because prior to that, and it's probably because I went after his ego, but he actually did it. He got involved. Did he turn into like, you know, a bleeding heart communist or anything? No. <laughs> but, you know, it, it meant something for him to go there. And it also meant something for them to see him there. Yeah. And it was, it was weird because online, these people would typically have never wanted to associate with each other, but in reality, they saw each other as people. It's crazy how people treat each other in person versus um, on Twitter or behind a keyboard. The stuff that someone will say to you on Twitter, they would never dare say to your face. And it's because behind a keyboard, it removes the human element that makes you kind of sit there and be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't say this. this is kind of mean. It sort of removes that empathy, empathy um, wall to an extent. And I think the more that people of different races, backgrounds, ages, demographics, whatever it is, are sort of being around each other, exposed to each other, working together, completing projects together, the more um, likely they are to have opinions about the opposite people in a way that's more positive versus negative. If you only you know, have heard about millennials and you've never really been around them and you've only read articles, that's probably what you're going to base your opinion on. But if you're around them a lot, you're going to say, you know what, a lot of these articles and things in the media, it's not really true. They aren't really like this, you know. Um, same thing with people, for instance, that have gotten out of prison or jail. There's always this sort of negative connotation around them, felons, offender, whatever. And people have this idea in their heads of who they are and what they are. And then it's like you see people in the community and they will meet people that have spent time behind bars and they have no idea. And when they find out they're completely floored because it doesn't meet this idea that they have in their head from the media. And I think that the more people can actually interact together, the better. Yeah. And I think, uh, and, and this is going to sound hypocritical, but I'll, I'll say it within 
some context. I think social media is one of the best, worst things to ever happen to humanity and one of the worst, best things to ever happen as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's partially because of where I work now professionally, but, you know, one criticism I've always had of Facebook is that it, it, you know, people, people attack Facebook for all the wrong reasons. And one of them is that they say, well, Facebook, you know, they, they tell me what I can't see and they tell me what to think. Well, more often than not, people need to remember most of Facebook's algorithms are just fully automated. They eliminated human curators for trending news and for uh, priority content, you know, five, five, six years ago. So now what you get on Facebook, while there is still some deliberate action done by the company, a majority of what you see is what you see. And Facebook, based off your activity and your interest in the data they're collecting, they will absolutely curate for you the environment that they think is going to most stimulate you, thus keep you on the platform. So I had somebody ask me, it's like, I, I get into a fight with my liberal friend and it's like, they don't see the videos and they don't see the, the, the articles and everything else. And it's like, we're living in two different worlds. And I was like, well, you, are. <laughs> you, you, you literally are, because if I went ahead and showed you your actual uh, data profile, which people can actually access on their own, it basically gives you a full breakdown of what Facebook thinks of you. And while it may, may or may not be precise or accurate, it gives a pretty general picture of the person you are without you having to actually ever manually input anything. So the odds of your liberal friend seeing the same articles or videos or pictures that you do, you know, based off the amount of activity and time that they spend on there, it's actually very rare that they will ever come in contact with anything that you would see on your feed. Well, the thing is, even if they are coming into contact with it, say you send them the video in a direct message, right? Depending on how political they are and how far down the rabbit hole they are, a lot of times their confirmation bias is going to kick in and they're going to basically look at something. And if they don't agree with what's happening or it's not meeting the narrative already in their heads, they're going to call it fake news. They're going to say it's wrong. It's made up. It's photoshopped. It's this or that. And so I think sometimes now we're at a place where when people are actually watching videos, if it doesn't meet what they already think is the case, then they just write it off as somehow fake or um, a false truth or an alternative narrative or something, right? And I think that's a really scary place whenever people can't see beyond their own beliefs and their own um, sort of political ideologies to actually look at something in front of them with open eyes and an open heart. How do you get past that though? I think that's really, really hard. I think, um, you know, I don't know. That's a really good question. I think that some people are probably too ingrained into what they already believe to really change it. I think there are some people that are more malleable in their thinking. And I think those are the people that typically are the ones that do switch political parties. So um, they're the ones that maybe end up becoming libertarian or maybe members of the Green Party or something. But um, for a lot of people, there's no way around it, I feel like at this point, because it's, I think for some people, the political party is almost like family to them. They were raised as a Democrat or Republican, and they may disagree with, say, Trump or Clinton or Biden or something. And they may have some sort of, you know, ideology issues with the platform. But at the same time, it's sort of like with a family. You might get into an, an argument with your uncle, your aunt or something. You're kind of pissed off, right? But you still show up for Thanksgiving and you're still nice and you still smile and hug them and sit down for dinner. These people are still going to vote for them come November, right? They feel still so tied to it that they, it's really hard to get someone to break away from those, those uh, 
those relationships they've built for decades, potentially, especially like the emotional connection to I'm a Democrat, my dad worked for the union or whatever it ends up being like, it's almost an identity. And when someone loses their identity, either because they lost their job or whatever it is, it's a huge psychological thing to go through. And I think it's not very easy for people to sort of just shed their old identity as a Republican or Democrat and become something else. I went through a, I went through a phase in like 2017. I think everyone goes through like a, a murder mystery phase where it's like, it's just true crime content all day. I think, I think, yeah, I think in 2017, that was definitely the year I had that phase, but there was this whole podcast called cults. And basically it was, every episode talked to you about a different cult in American history. And it would always give you like the, the psychology of like how these people got indoctrinated and how these people were able to manipulate other people. And as I kept listening to, it, I remember at the end of the Charles Manson episode, I was like, Holy shit. He could have been a great politician. Exactly. He just happened to also convince people to kill each other. There's a lot of, there's preying on fear. There's building up people individually. Um, Hate is one of the biggest motivators. People know that. So that and fear, right? And so you can just prey on that and say that all these people are heathens and they're all going to go to hell and you need to come with us or all these Democrats, you know, they're, they're the worst people and they're going to burn down the city and they're all rioting. Like is the more that you can cast that onto the other side, so to speak, and dehumanize them, the better off as a politician or a cult leader you're going to be. Yeah, there's a there there's a part in my second book, How Succeed in Politics and Other Forms of Devil Worship, where I'm talking about uh, George Wallace at his 1968 campaign rally in New York City, and it was inside of this old warehouse. And they what they did was they had a uh, they had all the press and all the cameramen like roped off in like the middle of the crowd. And Wallace intentionally told his campaign to do that because he wanted the reporters to be circled by the supporters and he would just completely berate them. It was, it was, you know, today's politics 50, 60 years ago. And uh, you know, there's a story of one reporter here from the New York times. And it was like, take your child to work day. And he chose the worst day to bring his kid. And as, uh, as, as he's trying to, take notes about the rally and everything. People are yelling at him, cursing at him. Wallace is calling them the Moscow Times. The kid is horrified. He thinks they're going to you know, go in and start attacking his dad and everything. So ironically, uh, him and his dad are staying at the same hotel as Wallace and the rest of his campaign. So after the rally, they go up to their room. They're just calming down. And then they get a knock at the door. The, the father from the New York Times goes, opens at the door, and it's Wallace's press secretary. And he's like, well, you know, hey, uh, the the governor would like to speak to you in his suite. So the the guy's like, okay, fine. And before he closes the door and walks with him, he's like, oh, he wants you to bring your son too. So at that point, the guy's really freaking out. So they go up to uh, Wallace's suite and they see Wallace sitting in a rocking chair in the corner, like something out of, um, what is it? What, what, what's, what's, the, what's the movie of like Norman Bates? Psycho? Psycho. 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 Yeah. Like, you know, I had the grand, the mom in the corner, she's dead and everything. It was something like that. It was, it was, you know, here you have this giant expensive suite and somehow they have like a little country rocking chair waiting for him. It was beautiful. And, uh, the Wallace doesn't even look at the father. He looks at the kid and he says, son, come over here. You know, the kid comes over, Wallace picks him up. He's like five or six, puts him on his lap, starts rocking the chair. Like it's him and his grandkid. And he's looking at him. He's like, Hey son, you know, those things I said to your daddy, don't think nothing of of them. That's just politics. Oh, God. And I think of that story every time I think of like the other side of these people, because they know exactly what they're doing. And they, it's like, you know, they have this on off mode. 
and they they go switch between it willingly. Well, the other thing is they know to play both sides. And so on camera, you'll see one Republican bashing a Democrat and they'll go back and forth and on Twitter, they'll fight. But then you see them like in the press, like laughing and they'll be like candid shots of them having dinner or something. And they're actually friends in real life. Like you kind of see how it's a game and they know how to work the system to get press. They have to have an altercation and they have to have something to disagree on because that creates controversy. And that also then creates a need for the media to cover it. And they know the more media attention they get, the more money they get for their reelection campaign. And so, I mean, they're all playing parts as if they're in like an actual theatrical play or movie. They know when to say this, they know when to say that, put the space on, put that one on. Um, they can, they know when to sing for the choir and they're really, really good at it. <laughs> and it's a sad sort of thing because a lot of times now people think it's all reality and it's not. This is not who these people are. This is who they're playing to get further in the game and further into what they want. That's all it is. Yeah, it's like it's like the people I know that only watch Fox News. They're like, well, Fox is only giving me the real story. And I'm like, really? How do you feel about them paying Don in Brazil $13 million a year? <laughs> Then it gets silent. I'm like, you know, you know, the WWE sets up who's going to win and lose those fights before you watch them, right? And There's a lot get- of, <laughs> I don't, there's like so many comparisons from like professional wrestling and politics. Like it's the exact same thing. Like I don't really watch professional wrestling, but there's a term, you probably know it. Like for the, the guy that's the bad guy. The heel. The heel, yes. There's a heel with every political race, right? And everything you hear about. And people voluntarily play that role because they know there's a reason for it. And it's all set up and you know it's going to happen. And it's just, it's the same thing without the physical violence, even though now we're starting to get that in politics. Um, but it's its the exact same thing. Yeah, I mean, there there are many strange things that I've noticed in, in wrestling. And I'm not a wrestling fan, but I have friends who have explained this to me. It's like there's one method called the fake out. It's go ahead and basically declare that you're you're retiring or you're quitting or something to go ahead and gauge public interest. It's it's the best way to see what people really think about you. And it's like, you know, when Trump was potentially running in the year 2000, he's getting really close to it. He's getting really close to it. Then he did a fake out. He's like, well, maybe I won't do it. And long story short, the, the public support wasn't there. Then he does it in 2012. And it's almost there, but you know, he's like, nah, I think I think I'm actually gonna just stay out this time. Then when he does it in 2016, he doesn't have to question anything. He knows it's the right time to maybe do a fake out, but then jump in. Mm-hmm. It's like when when he uh, didn't show up to the first couple de- well, I'm sorry, when he didn't show up to like the last couple debates, it was also to see what happened if he wouldn't be there. And what they noticed was that the ratings of the debates went down and he raised more money didn't help anybody else, but it was one of those things. That's why whenever, I, I think it's funny because at least once a year uh, up until recently, uh, MSNBC would go ahead and put out, uh, a, like I, I genuinely think they were false stories of Trump saying he doesn't want to run for re-election or he doesn't want to be president anymore. He's going to resign. I, I don't think that, that, that those stories had any validity to them, but at the same time, part of me is thinking, what if he said it and he told some, some low-level staffer to go ahead and leak it? And uh, make sure to make sure to get the words right. And he did it just to go ahead and gauge what what public responses would be like. I definitely think that's probably the case. If you like, it's a good way to covertly figure out sort of public opinion, and without having to spend a lot of money on it and time and effort, and to also like, I mean, you really sort of cut off the rest of the process. So you don't have to do public polling. You don't have to do market research you do it in a way that is very safe. And so that way, no matter what the outcome is, you're going to be looking fine. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it's so strange. I, 
and, and maybe maybe I've done the wrong thing by trying not to watch a lot of the news and not really engage in much conversation online. But like I, when when I left the Times, I, I remember this one moment. I was on the phone with my girlfriend driving home from work. It was during the the Mueller hearings, and I just told her how stressed I was and how constantly anxious I was, despite the fact mm-hmm. that my job was actually not not incredibly difficult. But it was not, you know, it wasn't like backbreaking labor. But the problem was I've got everything in front of me on a screen constantly. I'm having to go ahead and uh, start promoting target commentary pieces. And I'm surrounded by TVs, MSNBC, CNN, Sky News, BBC, Bloomberg, Fox, OAN. I've got all of it around me all day. And there was nothing more relaxing than the first time I took a vacation in several years. I went on a road trip around Virginia and I have this rule for myself where I would not watch TV, listen to anything political, and I wouldn't go online unless I was posting a picture of somewhere I went. And by the time I came back, I have not had the urge to watch anything since. I have watched zero minutes of both conventions. I completely agree with everything you're saying. And that's, <laughs> it's something that I've been struggling with, especially as this year has gone on, where um, I think Twitter is just it's something where after so much time, you just kind of click on it, you keep scrolling and it's almost like you don't even realize you're doing it, but you're just taking in so much negative stuff. And some of it's important to know, and I work and do some stuff with public policy. So I do need to know what's going on, but like, it's an unhealthy level and obsession or almost addiction that you just become so used to just, okay, just scroll, scroll, scroll. And then having stuff on the TV. I think there's a lot of times where I feel like I have to know everything that's going on, but it's like, I really don't like, I need to know, (laughs) you know, like I need to know enough. And like, I don't, you know, honestly, what they're talking about at 9 PM, they're going to be talking about the next day at noon or whatever, you know? So for me, one of the things I've started trying to do is like, I have my phone on do not disturb mode after 6 PM. Like, I don't care what it is. I don't want to know about the emails coming in. I have a couple people where if you call, like it will go through, but like, I need to start like slowing some of that down because otherwise it's midnight and I'm anxious as hell because all I'm like thinking about is, oh my God, this city's on fire. This guy is, you know, wrongfully about to be executed. You know, the, the polls are looking bad on this thing. Like there's, it's just too much. Right. And so for me, it's putting my phone on do not disturb. And then my favorite thing. So I call it my mental vacation every week. I do improv. I've started doing that recently. Oh, really? And I am like addicted to it for like so many reasons. Do, do you do like an improv group or have you just tried doing stand up? So I've been doing um, like it's a group that we're working on. Um, it's all virtual right now. It kind of sucks, but I'm doing it with Second City and it is so much fun. Like it's the first time since all this pandemic craziness happened that I sort of forgot what was happening around me for like hours at a time. I was like laughing so when I was crying. And it really forces you to be like present in the moment and forget everything else and just be funny and silly and like actually just have fun and relax. And like, otherwise, you know, everything just seems crazy and screwed up. And this is like my happy place. It's like the mental vacation I get for like four hours a week. And it is amazing. That is, that, that is something I wanted to get into, but there was always, I always found a reason whether they were legitimate or not, not to get into it. Hearing you say it makes me actually think, man, I know maybe I should do it, especially if I don't have to leave my house, put real clothes on. Wow. I mean, like I would, if you were like ever thought about doing it, I would definitely take advantage of it. It's so much fun. And it's like, there's also like all these life sort of lessons in improv that I never realized. Like, you know, the rules are like, sort of yes and which is obvious but like don't be an asshole and like um there's like certain things about like how you treat other people in the scene it really helps like listening skills um 
and I don't know, it's, there's just a lot where I think about how it can translate into my life and taming the chaos in the head and in the world. And, um, yeah, I think it's something that like is the best mental health thing I've done in a very long time. No, I, I totally understand it. I'm a, are you a big Dave Chappelle fan? Yes. And I was supposed to go see him a couple months ago and with COVID, they canceled the damn show. It was him and Joe Rogan and I was uh, so excited and they like rescheduled it and then they canceled it. So he, I don't know if we'll ever get to see him now. He was going to come do something at the Kennedy Center in in June. And I I had a I had a chance to actually get like orchestra pit tickets for that. Uh, but, you know, the whole thing got canceled because of this thing. So I'm in the same boat as you. But he talks about you know, being, being able to disconnect and reconnect. And he applies that to comedy. He's like, comedy is the only time that people are willing to let their guard down and be made fun of. Yeah. And, and it's, it's like, the, yeah. Sorry, good. No, go ahead. Well, the other thing I've realized too, is like doing media and like writing op-eds and doing different stuff. Like a lot of times I'm extra careful about things I say and how I act and how I look and how things come across. Like there's always this, the wheels are always turning about, you know, is this going to get me canceled or like, is this going to look right? Am I talking, you know, to the right points? And it's, it becomes a lot. And so with improv, there are no rules. There's, you can do no wrong basically to the extent and like, you know, you're not going to get kicked out of the group for the most part. Um, there's no right answers. Um, you know, like there are no wrong answers, Lord. Um, <laughs> clearly there's, the cool, there's the cold opening. <laughs> yeah. Clearly, I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, no, there's, so there's no wrong answers and there's like no pressure to like have the perfect answer. And the better improv you get, the better you are at not editing yourself and self-censoring. It's just being present and going through what feels right and just owning it. And like that is also very freeing coming from a place of like always trying to be like on and on messaging and on brand or on whatever I'm supposed to be saying. And it's just like, it's freeing in so many levels. Yeah. And I mean, when I back in a, 2017 was a kind of like my highlight year. And then it turned into like Kid Rock's Detroit after that for a little while. But like, I did a lot of uh, speaking panels. I I went to Vegas, I traveled around, I I did some panels in DC. And like, you could always tell the context of the panels. Like if I'm doing a a bar panel, like during a happy hour with a few other people for like a Liberty meetup, uh, Liberty pub is something we used to do here. Um, You know, we could talk about serious topic, but you know, half the people there are drinking and they want to see politicians say a joke. So it was, it was always funny. Then, you know, if you're going into like, you know, a, 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 a bigger event, a more formal event, maybe not, you know, crack, crack a joke at the most inappropriate times. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, that, that ability to disconnect and reconnect, that's the thing that a lot of people are losing. And I mean, my, um, I, I know, I know too many people it's like, okay, t- tell, tell me if you've seen this, have you ever been with like a friend recently and they don't have their phone on and they're just like not doing anything. It's like, they're not engaged in a conversation. It's like, they're just sitting there. Have you ever looked at them? Yeah. Yeah. Don't they look crazy? A little bit, yeah, because you're yeah. so used to, like, the other alternatives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, I had a friend who did that the other day, and he didn't have his phone. He wasn't engaged in the conversation. It's like he was looking off in a distance, and I looked at him. I'm like, dude, you look like a serial killer. What's going on? And he's like, well, I'm thinking about something that happened with those riots. And I'm like, oh dude, that was in Chicago. We're in Fairfax, Virginia. You're fine. He's like, yeah, but oh, you think they're going to – I'm like, shut up. They're not here. We're having dinner. They don't have to worry about it. You're good. You own guns. You're fine. And it's just one of those moments where it's like because he surrounds himself with so much of all of this, 
he's not able to disconnect. Am I saying don't worry about anything that's going on? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying live laissez about any of this, but you know, we, we live in a hyper-connected world. That doesn't mean that we're not miles apart and sometimes many, many conversations apart from having to have any reason to feel obligated to have an input on something. For sure. And I think some people don't realize that whatever they're passionate about, if it's you know criminal justice reform or regulatory reform or whatever it is, that is not the end-all be-all of you as a person. That cannot be tied your identity solely, right? So like you can have the passions, you can work on that stuff, but you also have to have stuff outside of that to sort of break it up. Something that brings you joy, happiness, just other things. Otherwise it becomes extremely depressing and anxious all the time. Something else I started doing too, which I haven't done lately. I used to be good about this. I used to do screenless Saturdays. So on Saturdays, I would not look at computer screens, TV screens, computer screens. I already said that. Um, My phone, I would only use to call people if I had to. And like at first, when you start to do it, you're like kind of fidgety. You're like, shit, what do I do with my time? Like, I can't get on the computer. I can't do this. And I found myself reading way more books. I was like going outside and going to parks and playing tennis way more, like actually healthy activities to the point where like then Sunday would roll around and I really wouldn't want to go sit at a computer. I want to keep doing these other alternative activities that were much better for me. And um, it's weird how you feel when you're doing that. After a couple of times of doing it, you feel so calm when Saturday rolls around and you're almost like hoping and praying that it comes faster because you want that, that relief again, that feeling of like, okay, everything's going to like slow down and I'm going to enjoy what's around me and not be, you know, 10 miles away in my head thinking about what's going on across the world for me. Yeah. And I, I feel like social media explicitly, and I think politics is like the ultimate poison pill with this. It gives people an excuse not to focus on things that are immediately around them. <laughs> yes. Like it gives them like, okay, I, I don't want to call out anybody specific. So I'm going to try and taper this, but like, <laughs> It's like, dude, George Soros is not coming for you. Take care of your kid. Yeah. Be nice to your spouse. Go literally do anything else. It's like MS-13 is not going to come into your neighborhood and burn down your house right now. Maybe, maybe watch a, I don't know, go, go back to school or something. It's like they, they use these things, and it's one reason why I don't, I don't jab. I don't, it's not that I'm jabbing at libertarians, but it's like why libertarians bug me. It's like they, they create this environment where it's like, oh, well, because X, Y, and Z are happening, I can never do this. It's like, oh, well, because – and this is a literal quote from several months ago. I got a free you to me class on, like, investing for morons, so it was basically made for me. And it was, it, it was this class, and I was talking to somebody uh, who I used to work with about it. And he's like, why are you taking that? Don't you know that the Federal Reserve is destroying all your dollar value? And, blah, blah, blah. and it's just like, there's no point in anything. And I'm like, dude, it's like, I'm not going to try and wait for some monumental cosmic event to like stop central banking before I try and take any accountability over my life. And like, isn't it possible that you can like understand the issues of the Federal Reserve and like want to reform that, but also at the same time, understand the money that you have and your life you're living and what maybe you should do proactively right now to make your life better financially in the long run? Like, I, I think sometimes people, it's always either and or, and it should be like something that, yes, you can have these opinions and understand the issues, but you also can go on living your life and trying to make the best decisions for yourself in the meantime, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, oh, wow, we're... 
we're, we're getting close on time. So I want this question to really kind of wrap everything up. 2020 has been a difficult year for everyone. Uh, some more so than others, but everybody has had a challenge that's really made them assess where they are in their life and personally and professionally at the end of 2020, unless things turn into December 32nd on New Year's Eve, how, how are you going to come out of this year better and more independent than you were at the beginning of it? That's a really good question. I'm going to come out of it, I think, mentally stronger um, than I have been Like with improv. Um, that's like literally been a huge game changer for me. It's changed me in my personality. Like I think for a couple of months, I've just been so negative because it's always politics, right? And I've taken that into my personal life and just been like a lump on the, uh, I can't talk tonight, um, like a bump on the log or whatever, right? Like I've just yeah. been there, but not like happy and I've not been like my normal self. And I think that has kind of got me back to where I usually am. And um, I think more independent in terms of just learning more life skills, like learning how to sew. Like I'm also now sewing clothes because mouse got boring and <laughs> I'm just more curious. Like, I don't know, like a lot of times I'm picking up clothes and like nothing fits. So it's like, hey, I can make my own clothes now, or at least I'm learning and trying. Um, like things like that, you know, improv, learning that, that's making me more independent too, because it's another activity that I do on my own for myself, for nobody else. No one's paying me. It's not advocacy. Um, and I think those things together and just other skill sets I'm trying to learn and, um, it just puts me in a better position going into next year of being a more well-rounded person that's mentally healthy and happy the entire year, hopefully. Um, and just being able to deal with the negativity a little bit better and not letting it get to me as much. Um, cause also like I do a lot of stuff with criminal justice reform and it's an area that's extremely emotional. And it's the kind of thing where you hear stories day in and day out that are heartbreaking and, and horrible stories and they eat at you. And if you don't have anything else to counteract those emotions to sort of get you out of that funk a little bit, like it will destroy you. Um, your biggest thing in criminal justice reform a lot of times is your heart and you're wanting to help people. But that also could be your biggest downside if you let everything get to you all the time. You have to have a reprieve from it. And so I think... I'm learning how to have better reprieves from things like that. That'll make me just better and stronger. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, especially when it comes into the advocacy field, um, they, they have this need to burn out because they feel guilty otherwise. Yep. It's almost like, how can I experience joy and why should I, whenever this person's behind bars right now, and this is what's happening to this person. Like you almost feel like there's so much wrong in the world. Like why should you be doing anything positive for, for yourself or, allowing yourself to be happy and carefree when all this bad stuff's happening. And I've learned that if you don't do the other side and have happiness and joy in your life, then you can't advocate for those who are in, in really bad positions because you are not that mentally strong. You're not that present. You don't have the energy and the focus to actually do it. Yeah, absolutely. You, you hit it right on the head. And uh, I mean, there's there's been so much to take away from this conversation. I really appreciate you coming on to talk. Uh, you do a ton of work. Your, your writing is great. And I, I love hearing your media hits and everything else. If people want to go ahead and, you know, keep up with your misadventures and everything, how could they do so? Um, so then go to lindsaymarie.com. That's Lindsay with an A. Or on, let's see, uh, social media, I am lindsaymarielp. And um, you can contact me on there. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, you know, we, we can have these conversations. I'm not saying disconnect from everything and focus entirely on yourself. No, I'm saying uh, understand where you begin and, the, and you know, the, the influence of the world ends. 
And I'm, I'm certainly not somebody who has completely managed that, but I think admitting that and trying to mitigate what I feel are external pressures that really have no control over me unless I allow them to happen, understanding that balance is what's going to make you better. And ultimately, I think it's going to make your relationships and your interactions with those around you so much healthier than otherwise. The world might be burning, but I don't think December 32nd is going to come. But even then, it's not just a year, it's a situation, and every situation is based off your actions. What you do is what's going to happen. The results are entirely in your hands. Sometimes they're not, but more often they are. And one thing you can easily do, or else you're an absolute jerk, leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It takes you two seconds. It costs you nothing, and it's everything to me. So please, go ahead and do that. Share this episode with some friends, one or two here and there, and I will be back in a couple of days. As always, this is On the Run with Hermsa W. Martinez. Stay well. Good night. shows and more from the We Are Libertarians network at wearelibertarians.com.